this week, we are continuing the Dhammachakkapavattana Sutta, the setting of the wheel, Dhamma in motion. Uh, crucial, if not the crucial Sutta of what makes this path a unique path and starts us off on this vast journey, the beginning. Um, so last week we talked about uh, extensively about the background, the context as to where and when it occurred, what was happening um, in the life of the sasana, the dispensation of Lord Vita. And also uh, we were able to cover the first two of the Four Noble Truths. And we approached them both. We bundled them in two, if you recall. Um, one would be the unwholesome, looking at the unwholesome experience uh, and specifically about this, the, the existence, the presence of suffering and its cause. And the second bundle would be the wholesome one that we'll, we'll be talking about today, meaning the third and the fourth noble truths. And the connection there I was trying to make was with uh, the four right efforts, if you recall. So traditionally, there are few discourses. Specifically, there's three discourses um, known as the earliest discourses or suttas given by Lord Buddha. One of them, of course, is this, uh, the Dhamma Chakka Pavartana Sutta, which is uh, coming to us from Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected or linked discourses. Um, and in, in addition to it, there is uh, there are uh, two others specifically, and uh, uh, especially this one, uh, the Anatta Lakkana Sutta, uh, that also comes from the Sangyutta Nikaya, and that is where we look at the non-substantiality, what often is called the non-self. Um, and that is where uh, the five bhikkhus become arahants. So it's a very important sutta. Um, so they usually go hand in hand, the Dhammachakkapavattana and the Anattalakkana. However, because I mentioned the three traditionally recognized discourses, the one to follow pretty closely is the Aditya Pariyaya Sutta. And you probably might have heard it's the uh, fire sermon where Lord Buddha um, gathers uh, around him. Uh, 1,000 uh, 1, uh, bhikkhus. <laughs> Um, and uh, he gives them the discourse on the fire sermon, on the on the craving being uh, found everywhere. However, usually there is a, a, an omission, uh, one sutta that gets to be neglected from this bundle of three suttas that go together, and that is the Hemavata Sutta, which comes from the Sutta Nipata. And Sutta Nipata, if you recall, uh, I've mentioned how it is 
even mentioned the Sutta Nipata itself as a collection of discourses. It's even mentioned within the suttas. So we know in more than one place. Uh, so we know for sure that it is the oldest. Um, so Hemavata Sutta also is joined in uh, the other three. Uh, my attempt will be, uh, because of their enormous value to our practice, uh, my attempt will be to um, cover as much as I can of these uh, four um, and individually. So uh, my goal is within the next month or so to address each of these sutta. Uh, of course, the next one will be Anattalakkana, then Aditya Pariyaya, and then the Hemavata Sutta. So um, without further ado, let's, let's jump right in uh, to the continuation of uh, today's sutta. Uh, so we leave off last week. Okay, so the third noble truth. Uh, furthermore, bhikkhus, understand this now to be the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. That is, the complete and remainderless state of dispassion, which is the ending of that same thirst, the giving up, the release from bondage, the non-reliance upon and total freedom from that very same thirst. When we hear the word thirst, sometimes they alternate with craving. Uh, translators, I like to use thirst here. Uh, instead of the typical craving. Um, it has more of a human element to it, I think. Um, and the term for this noble truth is nirodha. Nirodha, no more binding, no more imprisonment. Um, from what? From the, uh, from the from dukkha. So you're ceasing from suffering. So here we're seeing the third noble truth um, and the ending of, of, of dukkha, of suffering in whatever shape or form it might be presented to us. Um, in other words, we're talking about Nibbana. Here's where we get the hope <laughs> for the person who is lost in suffering. Last week, I was mentioning how some, some types of physical pain can be so overwhelming that we forget that it is also impermanent. Suffering is impermanent. It's not going to last forever. But the person who's experiencing it at that time, it's very difficult to convince them otherwise that it is, in fact, you know, and what they are thinking is it's, in fact, permanent. So Nibbana is cessation of that um, depth of ignorance that the person is experiencing, which takes us back to the second noble truth as to questioning, where is this suffering coming from? They're very much related, as you can see, first, second, third. And then we're going to see also the fourth noble truth, which is the way to get to the ending, the process. Um, and these two, again, are the wholesome aspect of life that um, I was referring to earlier and last week. 
in the uh, Gavampati Sutta from again Sangyutta Nikaya, we read how the Blessed One uh, declares that the one who sees suffering also can see the cause of suffering and can also see the ending of suffering and can also see the way that leads us to the ending of suffering. See what I was mentioning about the connections between these four noble truths, they are very much related. They open up to each other. They're crucial for each other. For the completion of each of these other truths, you need each individual truth, you need the other three. And it's not a matter of beating one versus the other, preferring one over the other. In order for there to be nirodha, the third cessation, there needs to be a proper appreciation, understanding, awareness, honestly understanding of the first noble truth, which is suffering. But what we have in the world, and this has been the case throughout history, where due to the presence of ignorance, we go ahead and latch on to the suffering and we never go beyond it. And we somehow want to get a relief from it. Well, that's asking for the impossible, isn't it? We need to understand the process, and that is the second noble truth. But usually we will never get to the second noble truth unless the suffering is so deep, it's so pervasive, it meets us at every single corner in our lives. Eventually we give up trying to outsmart it or ignore it or using evasive maneuvers to run away from it. And then we kind of own up to it and say, okay, 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 where is this coming from? But that itself requires tremendous amount of awareness and audacity to ask oneself. That's why not everyone who suffers can actually know the Four Noble Truths because they will never graduate beyond the first, because it's not even noble truth yet for them. It is just suffering. When we say four noble truths, noble truths, we're talking about a certain level of awareness there present to understand what is really taking place. Remember, this path is always about wisdom for the person to understand how these things manifest in one's own life. Furthermore, bhikkhus, understand this now to be the noble truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering, that being the noble eightfold path, that is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right collectedness of mind. It's interesting how Lord Buddha places Magga, which is the path, uh, uh, at the end, right after Nirodha. He talks about Nibbana or Nirodha first, and then he talks about the path. I found that interesting, and uh, not many people uh, mention this, 
But in my life, I was like, wait a minute, won't I need to know the path first before I get there? But then there's this very important, subtle, but very important element there that is presented in Lord Buddha's um, teaching method, if you will. He wants to grab our attention by saying there is healing, by saying there is an end of your suffering. Before he gets into the details as to how, there is an end. He's giving us hope. Not baseless, but it's, it's there. But he has to grab, he has to pull us out of that miserable state of ignorance, which is the true suffering. He's saying there is a way out of samsara, which is unthinkable if you think about, uh, look at the whole um, background, the panorama of, of India at that time, because everybody was in it. Sansara was undefeatable, unbreakable. You can never come out of sansara, and that was that. Hmm. So that was the cycle. You constantly go life to life, life to life, no matter how many sublime states or whatever, you're still in it. So he's showing us there is niroda, there is cessation. And once he grabbed our attention, then he's offering us, okay, this is the manual. This is the step-by-step -step process of how to get there. Look at his compassion, at his practicality. That's why I keep saying he was the teacher par excellence. There's nobody like him ever in history. Um, in just how modern, if we can call that, use that term, in his approach he was. So now as far as the noble truths, the Pali word for it is satya, satya. In, in Sanskrit it's satya, uh, which doesn't only mean truth. It can mean doctrine, it can mean um, nature, depending on uh, how it is being used. Purity also in some places I've seen it used, a little rare. Um, so it's basically a, a verity, a principle, um, something that is undeniable, irrefutable. It's the essence of something. Um, in essence, it's, 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 uh, it's not made up, basically. It's not conjured up by someone's imagination. It is there when the person has the ability to probe and see and get to. So we're being pointed at the essence of what makes life be the way it is, usually um, referring back to samsara and why we're in it. Uh, now, Lord Buddha never stated, you, can, you don't see it anywhere. He never um, expressed it, neither did his Arya Savakas that these four noble truths are his somehow, that uh, he came up with them, or that this was divinely inspired, like the case has been with the majority of the other religions. Um, so you don't see that. 
He merely discovered it. It was there. In fact, every single Tathagata, every single Buddha, they are known for giving this teaching, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, so, and, and, and also we need to understand that these are not truths, quote unquote, that we must believe in. Um, that is not the case either. So these have to be realized as the essence, as irrefutable by the person for themselves, as one's own truth, given their experience of it, given their understanding of the experience of it. So you see how it is so multi-nuanced. But we cannot experience Nibbana without first experiencing the noble truth of suffering. Not suffering, the noble truth of suffering, hugely different. That's why many people say, well, Bhante, how can suffering be noble? Again, it is not the suffering that is noble. It is one's superlative understanding as to the mechanism that brings about or has brought about suffering in the first place, that seeing all of that makes it a noble truth. So the sutta continues. Uh, by understanding for the first time this to be the noble truth of suffering because suddenly there arose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of vision with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced as the higher knowledge and light arose within me. Again, he's talking to the five disciples. Five disciples who are still waiting for answers. <laughs> You know, why did you turn your back on us type of a thing? Even though they kind of accepted him and they're no longer obviously using the word abuso and you know, pronoun like friend type of a thing, uh, singular you, uh, they accepted him and they've been mentioning, they've been calling him Bhante, for example, or Bhagavan, Holy One. But still they are not, you know, there yet. So he has to explain to them, it is only after I came to understand these four and their relationship to one another and all those nuances taking place at the same time that suddenly something happened, something happened. And knowledge and vision is in Pali, we use the term jnana dasana. Jnana dasana. Jnana is or knowledge, um, even wisdom, the knowingness that is very, very personal. And dasana um, also uh, is, is seeing, seeing, vision related. Jnana dasana, knowledge and vision, which is extremely personal. Extremely personal. That's why you might see. Uh, in a sutta, Lord Buddha's giving a discourse and out of a multitude of, let's say, 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, only one person gets it. They have the jnana dasana, the knowledge and vision of the 
experience, meaning Nibbana. Continuing on. Now, bhikkhus, this noble truth of suffering must be fully understood. As a result, bhikkhus, there arose in me the eye of Dhamma, in its completeness of vision, with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced, as the higher knowledge and light arose within me. So the first, he is setting up what this thing is. So in the first uh, paragraph we saw, this is the noble truth of suffering, okay? So that understanding needs to be there. And then we see the processes that will happen. And then um, when we get to um, this uh, paragraph, now because the third one, this noble truth of suffering has been fully understood by me. This thing has to be there. This thing is there. This thing has to be understood. And this has been understood by me. So it's three tiered. So here's another invitation to the students saying, okay, this is it. This is the theorem. This is the formula. This has to be developed or cultivated or at least understood. And this has been cultivated, developed and understood by me, your teacher. So that's what he's saying to them. As a result, because there arose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of vision with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced. And again, never previously experienced, we need to underline that because there's still ignorance in their mind where they're doing comparing and contrasting between Siddhartha Gautama, their previous teacher, and this obviously special being who still, it has to be Siddhartha Gautama, right? That is what's taking place in their mind. And Lord Buddha is trying his best to sever that connection for them so that they could see what he is teaching, understand what he's teaching, because they're too much dwelling in the past of what they thought was the Dhamma, should be the Dhamma, even though they're getting glimpses of the middle path, because he delineated clearly what is one extreme versus the other. And this Dhamma is all about the middle. So as I mentioned uh, earlier, this teaching, the Four Noble Truth, is unique to the Buddhas. Only the Buddhas can teach it. They can start it. Now the Buddha can die and his students can continue teaching it. The dispensation can carry on and our uh, Buddha, Lord Gautama Buddha, has been dead for 2,600 years. The person is gone, but the teaching is still there. And that's why we're lucky because the sasana is still alive because the Four Noble Truths is there, which is the epitome of the teaching of a Buddha. That's what they come to teach because the day will come where the teaching will no longer be available. And yes, sadly, we are getting closer and closer to that. Um, now, Interestingly enough, the reason why a Buddha also needs to show up in, a, in, a, in, a, in existence in the cosmos is because of the uh, loss of the dispensa dispensation of the Buddha, uh, Buddha's teaching, the previous one, meaning the Four Noble Truths. 
again, the Dhamma is always there, but it goes into darkness. And the Buddha is the one who really re, uh, dis rediscovers it. And each of the Buddhas, obviously, they have their own ways of approaching it, teaching it, but the essence is there. The Four Noble Truths have to be clearly delineated in each of them. But they cannot be around even a snippet of it, the semblance of it, when a new Buddha appears. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so these truths, we need to look at them as healing agents. Uh, they allow us to heal where Lord Buddha is the great physician himself. But if we take them just like, you know, statements and things, we can print them out, post them around the house, have them in our phone or memorize them where they're from, which uh, sutta, where, which nikaya, basically not make it our own. It's very difficult to make that be, you know, to make that have a healing property to it, the teaching. This is why I, I discourage people to move away from just memorization and to start applying just a tiny little snippet of the Dhamma, like Lord Buddha says in the Dhammapada, even a small portion of the verse, verses of the Dhammapada is enough. You don't have to know so much and put that into practice to end suffering, to end dukkha. Because the Magga or the Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth is itself the medicine. The medicine. So that needs to be applied on a daily basis. And now the easiest way to apply the medicine is by practicing sila because the sila steps, the five precepts are also found within the Noble Eightfold Path. Because Noble Eightfold Path works on what? Not just the body. Of course it starts in the form of let's say uh, right action. What is that? That's the body. But it starts with the mind, right view, right intention. So body and mind. And then we have right speech. Ah, vacha. Oh, the speech. So they're all there. And that's what you're taking every time you sit to, to, uh, to take your five precepts. Don't think about, you don't have to think about, oh, am I applying the Eightfold Path in this or that way? I mean, it's wonderful if you do and stop in the middle of the day and process that. But just starting with your five precepts, you're already doing a lot in taking the medicine of the four, fourth noble truth. And by taking the medicine, we will see, we will experience the third noble truth, which is the cessation. Cessation of what? At least we're not exposing ourselves to so much suffering as before. Already you're seeing it. So the first and second noble truths are there to kind of highlight, validate, normalize in a sense what we're going through, but we're, that's not the point of focus. The focus is jumping all the way to the back end, the fourth noble truth starting from there. Because our goal is the third noble truth, <laughs> experiencing Niroda. Remember, Lord Buddha taught two things, that's it. There is suffering 
and there's a way out of suffering, what are you going to do about it? That's what basically the sasana is all about. And it's, it falls on our shoulders as to what we're going to do about it. So uh, by understanding for the first time this to be the noble truth of the origin and cause of suffering because now he's talking about the second noble truth. Uh, so each of these four noble truths, he will be opening them up, unfolding them in these three steps by delineating what each of them are or is in this case and what needs to be done with that noble truth, if it's to be understood, cultivated, developed, etc. And then thirdly, for each of these truths, he was declaring to the students that I have attained it. I have, let's say, if it needs to be developed, when we get to the third aspect of this unfolding of each of these noble truths, he's saying, I have already developed it. I have understood it. I have cultivated it already. So now because the noble truth of the origin and cause of suffering must be abandoned. So this is what needs to be done with it, must be abandoned. The first one, if you recall, was to be understood. Second noble truth must be abandoned. The origin of it must be, the cause of it must be abandoned. As a result, because there arose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of vision with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced as the higher knowledge and light arose within me. Now, because this noble truth of the origin and cause of suffering has been abandoned by me. See, he's saying, I've already done this. As a result, because there arose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of vision. Now he comes to the third noble truth. By understanding for the first time this to be the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, because suddenly there arose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of vision with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced, as the higher knowledge and light arose within me. Um, I feel I need to mention the five grasping aggregates, um, the five aggregates that we grasp. We all have them. So long as we're alive, we all have the five aggregates in this body. The difference between the Arahant and ourselves is that we grasp onto them. This is my thinking. These are my thoughts, perception. Uh, these, are, these are my habits. These are my tendencies. Basically, we're talking about sankharas. Uh, this is my body, namarupa. These are my emotions, my feelings, my sensations, painful sensations, vedana. This is how I'm perceiving the world. This is how something happens immediately. I respond this way. We're also seeing connections with vinyana, sense awareness. These are at the root of the problem of suffering. Very closely tied in. In fact, they are at the core of the second noble truth as the origin of suffering, because there is where ignorance dwells. 
because of ignorance, we have the grasping aggregates. We turn the aggregates into grasping, into a grasping phenomenon. And that's why we sit to meditate, to weaken the gluing agent between them, between these five aggregates. And that's why we're having restlessness in our sit. That's why we're having drowsiness in our sit. That's why there's doubt in the practice, towards the practice, towards ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. That's why there is lust, lusting after food, lusting after other sensualities while we're trying to sit. What's taking place then? The aggregates, we're grasping onto them. And that the cause of that is the ignorance that is found within the second noble truth. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because with the understanding of the four noble truths, we're seeing the connection come apart between these five grasping um, um, aggregates, which are the cause of, 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 of suffering. They're called Panchupadana, Kanda, Dukkha. Pancha means five. Upadana means the grasping. Uh, Kanda, obviously, are the aggregates. And Dukkha is Dukkha, good old Dukkha, suffering. So uh, you're not doing something different. You're not doing something else, totally uh, away and separate from applying the Four Noble Truths, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. Every time you sit, every time you're meeting with your hindrances and you're not engaging in combat with them, like head on, to try to demolish them or beat them, what you're doing is you're applying the Four Noble Truths. The steps of the eighth, uh, Eightfold Path is, are there if you're recalling them. Am I applying right effort there? in how I'm handling to bring myself back to a state of equilibrium instead of engaging in this tumultuous state of trying to bring some, some supernormal state into being. Am I latching on to yesterday's sit? All of these things requires wisdom. This is the third part of the training, Sila Samadhi Panya, if you recall. Panya is the wisdom, you're applying it. Sila is the virtue, is the precept. And Samadhi is what you are doing. You're in the midst of it when you're meditating. So you see the whole teaching of Lord Buddha is in one morsel right there. Everything there is. They say it's 84,000 teachings. Well, guess what? They're on the cushion that you're sitting on every time you sit that's why it's a rare opportunity so please don't be disheartened into thinking well it's such a vast ocean of suttas this teachings which one am i going to remember no don't worry about it they're all there how's your attitude even that can be a lead-in can prompt you into the right direction direct you in the right trajectory what is my attitude? That can encapsulate for the person the whole of the Eightfold Path. 
And if you have the Eightfold Path, pretty much you have Niroda. And why are you practicing? Because you also understand that there is suffering. And now you've also understand the cause of suffering. Boom, all of it is there in one spot in the nucleus that is your sit. Not bad. This thing was all figured out 2,600 years ago by Lord Buddha. That, well, that is one of the reasons why is simply incomparable. This Dhamma is incomparable because it makes it your truth irrefutably. Now, because uh, this noble truth of the cessation of suffering must be experienced, so this is what needs to be done with it, must be experienced, the niroda, the cessation or nibbana. As a result, because there arose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of vision. By the way, without the eye of Dhamma manifesting, arising, there's no nibbana. You cannot figure it out, basically. You can't outsmart it. It needs to arise within the person. And that is where it makes it undeniable, irrefutable. That's the irrefutable part <laughs> within the whole experience. But it must be experienced through understanding and through you maintaining your course and not giving up. Not giving up. And then he says uh, his own declaration of now because the noble truth of the cessation of suffering has been experienced by me. As a result, because there arose in me the eye of Dhamma and its completeness of vision with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced. When he says in its completeness of vision, what he is categorically stating there that is that there is no more doubt in him about the validity. And that is one other thing that happens when there is the eye of Dhamma that appears in the heart or mind of the person, all doubt as to what is the Dhamma and what is not the Dhamma disappears. So if you have truly seen with the eye of Dhamma, if you find yourself in the presence of someone who is, let's say, teaching our Dhamma, it will not sit well with you. You will know something is off. You don't, you might not be able to put your finger on it, but you will know something is not right. In your heart of hearts, you will know. Why? Because there's a certain, well, there's certainty in your heart of the experience of the eye of Dhamma. That is the bottom, that is the litmus test, if you will. Because we practice not for some attainments. What is the attainment if not getting us to a fuller understanding of the Dhamma? Over the course of centuries or millennia, people have thought that it's all about attainments, attaining this samadhi, these uh, supernormal powers, these supernormal states or jhanas, this, that, seeing things. They're all bells and whistles. They're all conditioned. This is not conditioned. The eye of Dhamma appearing, it's not conditioned. It, it occurs because what he's saying is there arose in me the eye of Dhamma. He's talking about Nibbana has taken place. At least in one of its four stages. 
at least, at the very least, the Sotapanna stage has been attained. Attained, yes, but the Dhamma has to be alive within the person. There isn't this seeking of an attainment out there from oneself. One's own life becomes a reflection of the Dhamma. So it's not an ego trip. So, uh, earlier I was talking about, uh, briefly, uh, about the, the grasping aggregates and um, the aggregates that are found inside of, you know, in the, in the body, in the life, still breathing, living uh, body of, of, of an arahant. Um, why? What's the difference? Well, because of us grasping these aggregates, we, on top of the physical suffering we must endure, having a body, fingers, head, body, whatever. In addition to that, we also must deal with the psycho-emotional suffering. The Arahant does not anymore. They're free from it. They're completely released from it. That's where the release comes but they have been working on it continuously. Every time you sit, you are severing, trying to sever that connection. Each of us has a different sized rope, if you will, or knots, depending on how well or how long you've worked on yours. Only a Buddha can know how far along you've come. But so long as that final snip has happened, the cut, we must endure. We must, despite being in the world, we need to push and to make sure that we're doing our very best, at the very least, to cut the psycho-emotional uh, suffering out. Everybody has to deal with the physical pain. Because even after becoming Arahants, they still endured suffering, sometimes tremendous suffering. Venerable Sariputta died in his 80s from uh, not just old age, but he had a very painful case of dysentery. Every time he went to the bathroom, I mean, they were using buckets uh, to, to remove the blood from under him as he had uh, gone back to his childhood home so that he could teach the Dhamma to his own mother. And he does teach her. And she also sees it with the eye of Dhamma. She becomes a Sotapanna. And Venerable uh, Mahamo Galana died a very nasty death, in a sense, uh, because I think I mentioned how uh, robbers that the Jains had, per, you know, bought them, basically, murderers, they had gone to his kuti. And finally, he allowed them to come in and, and cut him into pieces. Lord Buddha, back pain, severe, severe backache. So the body's suffering is there and we're not gonna get rid of it. We can protect ourselves as best as possible, exercise this and that, but it is there. 
the other is not. So our focus needs to be getting rid of the psycho-emotional suffering. What I see often is the opposite. People are more interested in not having the physical pain. And they're saying, Bhante, I'm okay with the psychological. I just don't want to feel these knee pains or whatever. And I was like, you got it all wrong. Because those are coming from your past sankharas. And you're not going to be able to stop them head on. Sankharas are there. It's, it's just enormous. There's no way that we're going to find out what sankara is responsible for what that's not Dhamma. If somebody teaches you, yes, we're going to eliminate sankharas by going after this, or they're not talking about Buddhism, the Dhamma. Now we can understand them, of course, and that's what the Four Noble Truths is all trying to do. And as the understanding develops, slowly, slowly, those habitual patterns slowly, slowly die off. We don't give them opportunities for these old sankharas to show up their ugly heads anymore. And if you don't water that plant, it's going to die. So it's indirectly addressing the sankharas. That's different because you're now using wisdom. So by understanding for the first time this to be the noble truth, uh, truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering, because suddenly there arose in me, the eye of Dhamma, in its completeness of vision, with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced, as the higher knowledge and light arose within me. Uh, a higher knowledge, um, sometimes people call it um, supramundane or uh, sublime knowledge. It's also termed as uh, abhinya. Uh, sometimes some people have called it superhuman or psychic even, but I don't agree with that. So higher knowledge fits much better. Uh, so as I was mentioning earlier, we're seeing the three phases of each of the truths being unraveled for us by Lord Buddha to see the practical ways of applying each of these truths. So it has to be understood. Well, first there is this, this truth. Okay, let's, it's like the infinitive. This is, this is it. Uh, now, what do we do with this? Well, this is what we do. We cultivate, let's say. Okay. Uh, and then Lord Buddha says, I have done this. Which is another mini version of him declaring again what he in, uh, initially in, uh, stated to the five. And also to Upaka uh, last week, if you remember that uh, naked ascetic to whom Lord Buddha declared that I am the Buddha, the first living human being, he said that to the guy rolls his eyes and shakes his head and walks away. Uh, <laughs> that didn't turn out well. So uh, here, well, later on it did because he ends up being an anagami and an anand eventually. So Lord Buddha's giving the method, the formula of, uh, of how to do it, okay? He's very pragmatic. So how to accomplish the, not just leaving it as just a mere knowledge, how to apply it in your life. 
Now, because this noble truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering must be developed and experienced as a result, because there rose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of, uh, actually it was the path uh, that leads to the cessation. Yes, yes, that was correct. As a result, because there arose in me the eye of Dhamma in its completeness of vision. So now he declares uh, for the fourth noble truth, the very last step, which was, I also have experienced this. So this is my invitation to you, he's saying. This is what it is. This is what needs to be done. And I did it. Your turn. So... Uh, in order for there to be any kind of reduction, any amount of reduction of suffering, dissipation of suffering, we need to put effort. We usually have to put a lot of effort. At the very least, we need to give ourselves a, a new set of behaviors different than what we've been used to. Like Siddhartha Gautama, he was applying his old methods, sets of behaviors that were not helping the situation at all. Starving yourself and eating one grain of rice, a normal sized grain of rice is not going to sustain you, period. not drinking any water except for whatever you might find on a dead leaf from the dew that was gathered early in the morning is not going to sustain you for hours and hours and hours of meditation. You will die. Your mind will not be clear to perceive and understand these various different states of mind. So there's there must be a different approach that we sub subscribe to, we bring into our lives. So that's the next chapter. That's the next chapter that Lord Buddha just revealed to the bhikkhus. And he's saying, what are you going to do about it? This is the step-by-step -step process, but it requires effort. So, the one desiring to, let's say, make fire, they need to find themselves two pieces of dry wood first. You can't get one dry and the other one green, still moist, or pull it out of the river or creek and rub it against the dry wood and say, well, I, at least I have one. No, it won't work. You need two pieces of sturdy, uh, long enough uh, and manageable enough pieces of wood. Now, once you have them, you need to apply a certain amount of effort at a certain time period with certain frequency and pressure and intensity applied throughout that time before fire happens. And not give up. Not give up. This requires diligent work. Some people say, well, yeah, I've done a retreat. Uh, I've done an online retreat, or I've actually gone to physical face-to-face -face retreats. I've done so many. Okay, what happens afterwards? Once a year? Or what, what, what's the, 
there needs to be charana and vidya. Charana is the conduct, specifically right conduct, behavior. And there needs to be the understanding, vidya, as to why am I living according to this conduct or applying this, bringing this new conduct into my world, basically adopting new habits for myself. Well, you're opening up a new chapter for yourself. I mean, if you're not going to do it, who will? Well, I've always been like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's in the, it runs in the family. So we're all like, what? Many of us have these lame excuses. And that is where it becomes dangerous when many of us take the Dhamma or the Four Noble Truths or the suttas, for example, the readings, whatever we expose ourselves to, to, uh, to just pile up on top of that trash bin. Because we're never addressing the problem. I need to change my old behaviors, period. Then I can learn. Charana and Vidya, they have to be there. When we give the attributes, when we pay homage to Lord Buddha, the qualities of Lord Buddha, there is one says, Vijja Charana Sampanno Sugato Loka He has the right understanding, he has the right conduct throughout. Not just for him to stay there as the Buddha, but to inspire us to mimic him, to apply those principles and to see what he saw and to break out of suffering and to take the medicine, which is basically the fourth noble truth, as I mentioned. Um, so now because this noble truth of, of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering has been developed and experienced by me, as a result, because there arose in me the eye of Dhamma and its completeness of vision with wisdom and understanding of things never previously experienced as the higher knowledge and light arose within me. So here we see the Dhamma as theory, the first noble truth or fourth noble truth, this is what it is. Uh, Dhamma as practice. Uh, by the way, uh, theory is pariyati or studying is just pariyati. And then when it's we we're talking about the Dhamma as practice, then it call it is called a patipati or patipada. It's the practice oriented. And then you have the pativeda or the Dhamma as one's own awakening, uh, one's own realization. These are the three aspects that we went over, which made the four noble truths, because each of them were subdivided, unraveled, if you will, I use that term, into three, that made the four noble truths be widened up for clear understanding into 12 phases. Because we just followed Pariyati, Patipati, and Pativedha. Uh, theory, practice and realization.
So when we look at the Four Noble Truths, we need to look at them within that context as well. It, it, it enhances their meaning. So um, bhikkhus, now this is where he is putting the final touches to the discourse. Here is, he's returning back to his earlier statement when they kept on repeating that avuso, avuso, friend, friend. None of the things that you were using, the techniques and this and that, when you were with us, you hadn't reached these states that you're talking about. And he said, have I ever told you back then any of the things that I'm telling you now? At that moment, they switched and they said, no, Bhante. So here is where his second declaration comes in. Bhikkhus, for as long as I did not possess the purity of knowledge and vision, Nyanadasana, to fully discern these four noble truths and to see them as they truly are in their three individual and 12 collective aspects, I did not announce my supremely perfect awakening to this world with its devas, its maras, its brahmas with its recluses and brahmins, along with this generation of devas and humans. By the way, he just declared the fact that he is Samma Sambuddha, supremely perfect awakening. And he's not mentioning it to Upaka anymore. He's specifically saying it to his five disciples. And they're not the only ones listening, by the way, as we'll find out. But it was only after I possessed the purity of knowledge and vision to fully discern these four noble truths and see them as they truly are in their three individual and 12 collective aspects that I announced my supremely perfect awakening to this world with its devas, its maras, its brahmas, with its recluses and brahmins, along with this generation of devas and humans. Before we say something about ourselves, before we release some words out of our and away from our lips, we need to know what we're saying. Now, on a mundane level, compared to what we just read, uh, in the field of science, for example, um, scientists if they make a, even if it's an absolutely 100% genuine discovery, following the scientific method, et cetera, et cetera, uh, doing checks and cross-checking all these different aspects of their research to make sure that it is, uh, you know, uh, rigorously done, uh, they have to send it to colleagues, this and that. And then finally, they submit it for review in a major scientific journal. Now, why do I bring this into something as mundane as that into here, into the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana? Lord Buddha is saying, until I reached that, I never claimed to have reached it. I had to know. Last week, we talked about seven weeks of him being within the vicinity of Gaia, Bodh Gaya, processing what he has experienced, allowing it to sink in. Seven weeks under the Bodhi tree, seven weeks standing or doing Chankama. 
seven weeks under uh, um, seven days i'm sorry seven days under uh, another tree <laughs> three phases of the night where he's going through the anuloma patiloma and both together of the patichasamupada 12 links of causation all of these things guaranteed him that he had done the rigorous checking <laughs> that he's sharing now with them so he's like this is genuine guys this is the real deal that I'm bringing to you, not to uh, trivialize what is being said, of course. Thus, the experiential knowing and vision arose in me as I realized unshakable is my freedom. This is my very last birth. Now there is no more re-becoming. Wow. This is what the Blessed One said. Elated, the hearts of the group of five bhikkhus were gladdened as they all delighted in hearing the Blessed One's words. There was no skepticism left anymore in their minds. Now, I feel the need to mention a few words about the disciples themselves so that we can flesh them out and we have some relationship to them instead of just looking at them the group of five five disciples five five so they have a story you know uh and it takes us back the story takes us back to lord buddha's birth uh, siddhartha gautama's birth where among the five we have venerable uh he's not yet venerable because he's one of the disciples still uh uh kondanya he was the eldest in age among the five. Now, <laughs> 35 years earlier, he was a mere young lad, barely 16 or 17 years old. He was among the, I think, group of eight Brahmins, Rishis, that had been called upon to appear in court to validate or to predict, if you will, uh, the young Siddhartha's future. And these were Rishis, these were experts at the Vedas and they were astrologers. So they knew, they were the, you know, the Googles, if you will, of, of that day. Um, and there they are. And everybody is, you know, is giving when the king, uh, King Sudodana was asking them, what will the future of my crown prince will be? Everybody, except for one, raised one finger, meaning he will have one future Lord, and that will be a great king, a ruler of the earth. Now, when it got to young Kondanya, who was the youngest among them, dark-haired young lad, who was also an expert, so he was a prodigy in the Vedas, he holds out two fingers. He says, yes, there is the possibility because they were looking at the marks of the body of the child, of the infant. They were holding the baby. He held out two fingers. The one finger was to agree in a sense with what his colleagues had said, but he said, but there is that possibility that your son, O Lord, might become the Buddha. You can 
almost see the silence. You could probably hear a pin drop in the room and all the other seven rishis turning to him maybe with even like resentment and disgust, like how, how dare you go against what we said? We're the experts here. You don't know what you're talking about. But Kondanya was the only one who did this, who recognized that he was very probably, the plausibility was there highly uh, that he was in the room with a future Buddha. In fact, this was so shocking that after the meeting uh, with, the, with the king and his, at his court, he hands over the baby back to the king. Imagine he was holding baby Siddhartha in his hands. He recognized something. He recognized something. And it moved him so much that he left his Brahmin lifestyle. And he goes to, I believe he goes to his sister's house to declare of his intention to go to the Himalayas to, to meditate. We get these from different commentaries, by the way. You're not going to find them in the suttas. Um, and he goes to his sister, and his sister ha uh, has just conceived the child. Basically, she's pregnant. And he looks at the, child, at the body of his sister and says, you will have a son. And you will raise him up to a certain age. And then I will come and take him to teach him, because he will be the student also of the Buddha that is among us, that will be there. So in time, uh, that child, actually, that infant, the, the baby, the fetus will be in the infant and he will take him and guide him. He ends up being who, uh, the venerable that we came across uh, probably in the first sutta that we covered, where we met venerable Punna Mantani Putta, the relay chariots, if you recall, where Venerable Sariputta and Punna Mantani Putta were asking each other questions. Venerable Sariputta was asking, and at the end, he said, and who might you be? That Venerable uh, Punna Mantani Putta was the nephew of Kondanya. Now, I'm jumping ahead, but basically, when it neared the age of Siddhartha being 29 or so, um, where the prince left the princely life. Kondanya comes back to civilization and he goes to the uh, other seven rishis who were there with him at the court trying to predict uh, as to the future of the child. And each of those seven had their own children who had grown up. So now they were adults. So he goes and tries to convince them to go and now the prince has left. This is exactly how it's going to turn out. Like it's going perfectly. Like this is going to happen and next is going to be the Buddha. So let's go and become his students, his first students. Unfortunately, not all seven uh, uh, offspring wanted to go with him except for four. Uh, Asaji was one, one of them. Vappa, Bhaddiya, and Mahanama, they were the ones who left their own lives and became 
along with Kondanya, who is now their eldest, of course, the group of five. And they were all sitting there listening to Lord Buddha giving the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana to them. So that's the scene. We're going back to the Sutta now. Meanwhile, as this discourse was being given, there arose within the Venerable Kondanya's heart the spotless and immaculate Dhamma eye as he now personally understood as well how all that is the result of causes comes to an end. And as the Blessed One turned and set the wheel of Dhamma in motion thus, the devas living on the earth raised a jubilant cry for all to hear. At Varanasi in the deer park at Isipatana, the blessed Lord has finally turned and set the sublime wheel of the Dhamma in motion, which cannot be stopped by any recluse or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. The Devas of uh, the lowest level of Devas are the ones that are uh, on the plane of, 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 of the planet, basically the trees, uh, the woods, uh, that's, they're closest to the earth. They are on the earth, basically. In hearing the earth devas proclaiming aloud, the devas of the realm of the four great kings, the Chatumaharajikas, also raised a jubilant cry for all to hear. The four great kings, you probably have heard me mention them or they've come up previously. They are the four great kings that are responsible for the safety and protection of the planet and the solar system. And uh, they, of, of course, these are um, 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 cosmological, you know, things or explanations, many of which come from the contemporary uh, um, understanding of the cosmos and the world. Uh, or cosmology uh, at the time of Lord Buddha. But what we see happen is Lord Buddha showed, explained how these gods, for example, are not forever. They also have to fall under the, uh, they, within the, uh, the gap, or the, not gap, but the net of samsara. So they are also subject to uh, decay and death like everyone else because they're subject to impermanence. So, but anyhow, they're the next layer or, um, of, of devas who hear this and they, what we're seeing is basically slowly, slowly, the earth devas who were closest saw her, the Dhammachaka Pavattana and they made a cry, outcry, because this is pretty big. Because the last time this has happened was in the presence of the previous Buddha, and that has been like millions and millions of years past. So out of the darkness, there's this light. And that's what they're declaring so that they can get their voices up to the higher levels of the cosmos. So they too say at Varanasi in the deer park at Isipatana, the blessed Lord has finally turned and set the sublime wheel of the Dhamma in motion, which cannot be stopped by anyone. 
even the gods, even the Brahmas, there's nobody could stop it. Once Lord Buddha opens his mouth and explains the Four Noble Truths, that's it. And that's why, if you recall, during the fifth week, uh, Mara was trying to convince him to not teach. When Brahma Sampati came and begged and beseeched, uh, please, Bhante, please teach, open the gates of the deathless. And Lord Buddha says, yes, I will. The following week, Dhamma, uh, Mara is like really upset because now he's going to be losing a lot of potential clients. Um, so next layer to them would be the Tavantinsa, which are the 33, realm of the 33 the gods. Uh, uh, they also heard from this time the four great kings, and they too made their cry be heard. And the one after them were the Yama gods, a very sublime, delightful stage of, of heavenly birth, actually. Um, and they also said, at Varanasi in the deer park, uh, the Lord Buddha turned, finally this, uh, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. Uh, and then the Yama gods afterwards, the Tushita gods, even higher. Um, and then and they said that. They, and then the Nimmanarati devas, the gods who love to create, who are higher than the Tushita gods, they also declared it. And in hearing them, the gods uh, who love to control the creation of other gods, uh, uh, the Paranimita Vasavati Devas, they also raise the jubilant cry until it reaches the uh, Brahma uh, gods. And uh, those gods that are in the company of the Mahabrahma, uh, they also uh, made that cry at Varanasi in the Deer Park at Isipatana, the Blessed Lord has finally turned and set the sublime wheel of the Dhamma in motion, which cannot be stopped by any recluse or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. And so at that moment, and in that very instant, the resounding jubilant cry spread as far as the Brahma worlds. And these 10,000 galactic world systems all shook, quaked, and trembled. And a boundlessly magnificent light appeared instantaneously in each of these world systems, one that surpassed the majestic radiance of all the devas in all the realms combined. It's like a lightning strike that goes through all of these realms, blasting it, all these realms with light far superior to the light that is emitted by these uh, respective devas and brahmas. Then, at that moment, the Blessed One declared this joyous utterance. Kondanya has now seen it. Kondanya has now seen it. He was the eldest. As if hearing this declaration from one's own teacher is not enough. A declaration that is directed to the attentive student who was diligent, who was pursuing, who was just fully, fully, fully present. 
as if that's not enough to get the message across. One can just imagine what was going on in Venerable Kondanya's mind. All the different stampings of time, all the things, all these different phases of his life. From the moment he held baby Siddhartha and seeing something, declaring something about baby Siddhartha's future as the Buddha, now He's 35 years old. That baby is now Lord Buddha, a 35-year-old enlightened Samma Sambuddha sitting there who's teaching. His, his, it's his teacher. That was his dream. And his dream was also to be taught that Dhamma from him, from a living Buddha, and to gain, to understand, and to attain. And he just received that validation from his teacher. So it's just such a beautiful moment there. Um, that's so moving for me. And it was enough for him to know Jnana Dasana of another level. Because the other students, the four that are sitting there, who, by the way, have not seen the Dhamma. He was the first one to attain the state of Sotapanna, which grants the person, gives the person the full, 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 um, well, release from skeptical doubt about the Dhamma, about the teacher. And that's why we call it stream entry. There's no way of turning back. That certitude, that, that sense of um, uh, assuredness in oneself. So, so many elements were there, and uh, one can just imagine how jubilant his heart was um, sitting there in front of his teacher. And uh, this became the epitome of everything that he, he considered to be sacred, um, manifested in his teacher. So, um, all of his merits from all of the lifetimes now were there reaching a completion. But it wasn't the end, of course, because that was just one of the phases of, of the stages of awakening. So this was his way of showing his love and diligence to the teacher, even when the teacher was a baby. Uh, and to carry that for 35 years, nonstop, not to give up hope, waiting, waiting year after year in the Himalayas for the news that Prince Siddhartha has left the palace. He knew he would be leaving. He knew that in his heart of hearts. For 29 years, he waited. And then when he heard, he left his cave and he went back to uh, Kapilavatu. And now he had finally, he's, he's finally uh, seen it. What a way to respect one's teacher. <laughs> what a way to pay true homage and to really go the distance 
And in, to my understanding, there's no higher uh, way of paying respect uh, or show love for a teacher than the way that Venerable Kondanya did um, by realizing and awakening to um, the true reality, seeing with the spotless uh, vision of the Dhamma eye and that uh, having crossed path of no, you know, point of no return as it became a Sotapanna. Um, so at that very moment, the Sutta continues, the Venerable Kondanya acquired the name Anya Kondanya, Kondanya who has seen it. And the Sutta comes to uh, its close. Sadhu, Sadhu. Um, by the way, to um, express his desire to uh, become ordained uh, right after, uh, um, the sutta doesn't mention this, but uh, we see it elsewhere, where Venerable Kondanya immediately asks for the um, high ordination of a bhikkhu, and Lord Buddha just does it, uh, accepts him as a bhikkhu, and he says, Ehi bhikkhu, come bhikkhu. That was his ordination. <laughs> so um, he says, well proclaimed is the Dhamma of the Blessed One. Uh, come, come, you're coming to the right place. Um, come and put an end to all suffering. Um, so, by the way, he became, uh, this was the very first ordination uh, ceremony, if you will. So he became, other than Lord Buddha, he became uh, um, the first bhikkhu, other than Lord Buddha, because Lord Buddha is a bhikkhu, of course. So he became bhikkhu number two, arahant number two, because Lord Buddha is also an arahant. Uh, so... Yeah, so and the, the other sutta that we'll be talking about, the Anatalakkana Sutta, there we see where the teaching that was imparted on the five will go, how far they will go. And uh, so right after Venerable Kondanya, um, within the next few days, uh, Vappa and Baddhya also uh, attain uh, Sotapanna. And then finally, I think it's on the fifth day or probably the day before, Mahana, Mahanama and Asaji also attain Sotapanna stage. Meanwhile, whoever was uh, attaining, they were immediately requesting the Upasampada or the higher ordination from Lord Buddha. And of course, they were being granted and they were um, shaving their heads and their beards and donning the robe of a bhikkhu and going to the village to uh, for alms rounds so that they can collect food to bring back. So for a few days, Lord Buddha stayed behind, making sure that he was nursing, quote unquote, the bhikkhu or the monks or the disciples that had not yet reached the state of Sotapanna. He was taking care of them, nursing them in the Dhamma. 
nursing them in the Dhamma. So he didn't even want to leave for food. And he didn't want them to leave Mahanama and Asaji to go focus on food. He wanted that arrow to be sharper and sharper. So just using the analogy of the two dry pieces of wood being rubbed against each other to create the fire, Dhamma, he didn't want to relinquish. He didn't want them to stop. So he was giving them so much Dhamma. That uh, we don't have uh, as to what was uh, it that he taught, but already this is a lot. Um, and it had to do obviously with the two teachings, as I mentioned, there is suffering and the way out of suffering. So uh, the next sutta would be the Anattalakkana sutta, which changes everything where all five become Arahants. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I will, I will uh, stop here and open for um, any questions you might have, comments, things that uh, might have come up for you. Uh, yes, I'm here to do my best to address them, please. Just uh, unmute yourself while you're about to ask a question, please. Thank you for your talk. Uh, this is just a clarification question for me to try and clear up something that I appear to have been confused about for a longer time. Um, and that is when I'm translating the word Dharma, what does Dharma mean? And there's, I understand there's a lot of different translations depending on the context, but in the capital D Dharma, which is the teaching of the Buddha I had in mind the story about the handful of leaves and that what he knew with all of the leaves in the tree in the forest and then what he was teaching was the handful of leaves but since he knew all of the leaves in the forest my shorthand translation of dharma became reality whenever i heard the word dharma i mean he was talking about what's true see knowledge and vision of things as they are would mean reality and so when you were talking about the word satya earlier in this talk and that really is what is an incontrovertible fact then i'm thinking what's the difference between satya and the dharma so later on, you then said that Dharma is what is what, what is and what is not Dukkha and the Four Noble Truths. So I guess my question boils down to, should I really be considering translating the word Dharma as simply what is and what is not what is and what is not Dukkha rather than knowledge and vision of everything or the all of the leaves should i keep my uh, understanding down to the handful of leaves or should i think about that it's all of the leaves in the forest context is 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 a wonderful thing uh the human brain doesn't well it likes to go on a field trip away from context often um 
because it's easier. It's less complicated. It is, it narrows the attention down to a single point, a single word, a single, a single synonym, um, etc. However, the wider a person's scope of understanding becomes, the more terminology or synonyms or definitions or contextual relevancies might be there for the person to put this term in their own right place, given the experience that is being had for that person. There are times where the Dhamma with a capital D, of course, will just be referring to Lord Buddha's teachings. Uh, and even that, to push that further, um, uh, the way, you know, what teachings are we talking about? Because you have different traditions that showed up centuries later that consider themselves also part of the Dhamma. Actually, they call it Dharma, which was highly influenced by Sanskrit. And so that, are we talking about that, Buddhist teachings? So we need to be more specific for our own sake. And also when we're communicating with others uh, as to what we mean by the Dhamma. If we're talking about the Satipatthana, of course, Dhamma there will mean something more specific. And yes, it will have some connection, obviously, to the teachings of Lord Buddha, but it would be directly connected to phenomena, such as, uh, you know, five uh, aggregates, or the five hindrances, right? Because we start from Kaya, Vedana, Chitta, and then Dhamma Anupassana, which is a much more in-depth way of looking and opening up the field of mindfulness that it's like almost like a fisheye lens all of a sudden it might be overwhelming but it shows us all these connections to the different um, states of being states of mind etc so now it's more specific um, but it is such a it is reality either way you look at it it is such a now, it also depends on the person's, um, again, repertoire of experiences, not just definitions, but experiences. The wider your understanding becomes of the Dhamma, which let's use it as an umbrella term for all these derivations of Dhamma and things pertaining to, it, to them, the, the, the better you'll be able to stay and be at peace with yourself, even though the mind wants to figure things out conceptually. Last week I was saying about, you know, we have a tendency of cognitively approaching or conceptually, conceptualizing, which can cut us off from reality, from the living experience, which is the where I'm making the reference for how is the mind at that moment when you are pondering these dhammas now, plural, because to me, that is where our focus has to be. Because Lord Buddha never, ever, the Tathagata would never say something unless it was needed to be said. So when he grabbed hold 
of the handful of leaves, there were bhikkhus there who were wondering, gee, I wonder what he's going to teach us next. Oh, can he teach us this? Or is he going to just this much already that you have? Whatever I've taught you is this much. And if you could take just a tiny little portion of that and just do work on that, meaning what are you doing right now? Where are you? What is your attitude with this teaching that I'm giving you, he's saying? Because from this, you can find your exit door. Just from this. Now, if we are very conceptually oriented, we like to make things have some, you know, we'll just pondering on them putting a lot of emphasis, figuring out. And again, like I think last week we, was mentioned now, learning styles, processing styles. Some of us are very conceptually oriented. Uh, but it's wonderful to have that. But it needs to be balanced with what is this, um, you know, symphony of concepts in my mind. What is it doing to my living experience, meaning, is there agitation in the mind? Am I able to observe my latching on to one concept versus others? Am I making too big of a deal about my understanding, my intellectual understanding, let's say, of the grasping uh, aggregates? Am I saying this is, this can only be this? as opposed to other possibilities being there, perhaps. All these things um, are included within, um, within your question. Um, because now we're still talking within somewhat of the confines of Buddhism, ism. If you go to Jainism, their understanding of dharma is completely different. If you go to Ayurveda, it's different. If you go to what we generally call as Hinduism, it's totally different. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I hope I'm able to somewhat address your question. Am I in the ballpark or? Yeah, I think that answer of the context is really the important part yeah yeah and it, it, this whole practice i i find it very contextual <laughs> you know i can't separate you when you come with a question let's say from the from everything that uh, everything else that is going on and has been happening in your life Specifically, of course, I, I, I don't know your life. I mean, I just have some little bits and pieces from what you've shared. But I generally would always do, you know, go the go-to uh, context, home of all the contexts, if you will, is your body. If the person is in, you know, we're, we're sharing a presence. If I'm seeing, that's why I like to, when, I, when a person asks me a question, let's say on a platform like this on, on Zoom, I like to see them because there's so much nonverbal information being shared. 
that the person might not even be aware of. So unfortunately, many commentators uh, to this day um, try to cut um, whatever dialogue is happening away from their contexts, out, divorce it from whatever else was going on. Even though Lord Buddha tries so hard, you see this all the time, when somebody comes in with an accusation towards a bhikkhu or some, they witnessed it, a group of bhikkhus saw something uh, being done by another bhikkhu, they would come and with evidence and all that, saying this so-and-so, he was there, he did this, we saw it, these are the witnesses. Lord Buddha would say, call him over. So the person would come. He would not just point the finger and start admonishing or criticizing or even, you know, he would still try to get more context, context in this case, singular, from this person. Okay, is this true? He literally asked that question. Is this true? Your colleagues are saying this. So he's giving them the benefit of a doubt to present their own backstory of what was taking place. And that unfortunately is not being looked at or even considered. One, by those who um, talk about the Dhamma, whether lay people or monastic, doesn't make a difference. Whether they, uh, there are those who comment, write books, use a lot of, lot of the different footnotes. Unless they're talking about context, I don't care about those footnotes. Just ego trip for me, as far as I'm concerned. But even more so, the stories that we come across in the suttas, the teachings specifically, they have to be related to your life as a human being living in the 21st century. Lord, made, Lord Buddha made sure that he put into place the mechanism that in, would ensure that, would guarantee that. But the key factor is the relatedness. That's another word that I like to use versus context. The context make us become more related with this person, with you, with your life, with your own unique circumstances. And that sometimes I think it's a major loss when we are not looking at the whole picture. Like that's why I, I, I love looking at, let's say in this case, Venerable Kondanya and his past. What was really happening? Why were they there? Why were there five? Who were these five? And why him, Siddhartha Gautama? I mean, he was just a prince. Why would they be around him, five of them, for five, six years? But there's a story behind it. Now, all that must come and sit beautifully in the context of your life. That's the bottom line. That's why I ask, what is the state of your mind when you are asking the question from yourself, what is the Dhamma? What is, what is Dhamma? Is there a fighting going on? Is there tumultuous, you know, ruffling of the boat or what, what, what's going on? Is there relaxation? Because there won't be any panya, there won't be any wisdom or understanding or jnana dasana coming out of chaos. 
that's not going to happen ever. But it will come, however, when the mind is able to settle, to sit, as it is gaining what you referred to also just now, and what in the suttas we read as yatabu tankajanati, to see things as they are, as they come to be, not in the outside world necessarily, but firstly in the mind. Our relationship, our relatedness, the contextual relevancy, if you will, of the Dhamma that I am taking on, I am exposing myself to, I'm listening to, I'm reading. Or am I just adding more data? Because that is unfortunately what often happens. I'm just adding more data, more data, more data. Well, how is that different from, let's say, from Judaism or Christianity or Islam that you came out of? The Dhamma is unlike anything out there. It is not the same as Ju Judaism. It is not the same as Christianity. It's definitely not the same as Islam. It stands on its own, higher than all of these, because it teaches us to be cut from the Kilesias, whereas the other religions, they don't. In fact, their highest, the founders, their God, whatever, is drenched in Kilesias. In the Dhamma, we have to cleanse our hearts of Kilesias. And there is no justification of keeping even one aspect of the Kilesias. There is no jealous God or something. Jealousy, what is that? Try to negotiate that into the Dhamma if you can. Anger, what is that? I have people who come up to me, well, there is justifiable anger, right, Bhante? You're Buddhist, so you should agree. I said, no, that annihilated the whole argument that was coming up. I was like, no. What do you mean? There's no, yeah. You cannot be a practitioner of the Dhamma and be angry at the same time or advocating for anger. Why? Because it is based in the Kilesha's. It is delusion. It is deluded. The same goes when a person takes, uh, goes to the dangerous aspect of where it can, when it's not applied with wisdom, metta can turn into affection. Even compassion can turn into some type of sympathy where the person convinces themselves that their own work on themselves is secondary, if not tertiary in importance. I have to go and save some other person. Well, where in the teachings of Lord Buddha do you see that exactly for 45 years? There isn't. Never. You don't see it. Later on, future sutras were written centuries later to justify these claims, to put it, basically they put words into the mouth of Lord Buddha. And uh, they downgraded the Arahants. And they brought up the Bodhisattvas and put them on a higher pedestal. What? Why? Because there were Kilesias there running the scene. Why? The mother of all the Kilesias is ignorance, delusion. Because the moment you postpone your work, the moment you say, no, 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 I have to save the rest of humanity or the rest of beings. <laughs> you basically 
are trashing the whole 45 years of Lord Buddha's teachings. You're eliminating. It was unnecessary, basically, you're saying. Our own Niroda, Nibbana, comes from our application of the fourth noble truth, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. And that can only be done by oneself, for oneself, for oneself. And that's why within the first 500 years, already the Dhamma became very much corrupted. In this case, Dhamma I'm using as a sasana, as the teachings of Lord Buddha became corrupted. So we're lucky to find still in the 21st century elements of the genuine Dhamma. It's still not the 100% purest form of it because we don't know. Uh, uh, but given the, 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 the relevancy of uh, relatedness, of uh, the, the actual applicability of the Eightfold Path, and the fact that we do have today individuals who can attain all the four stages, that's the proof in the pudding, as they say. So I know I kind of went on some tangents, but I hope I went, I didn't go too far. But. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Thank you for your question. Always uh, makes us, you know, look at our own thoughts. Appreciate that. Any other thoughts, comments? Yes. Thank you very much for the fascinating talk. I had a question about the the shockwave. Um, did it travel to like toward the lower realms at all? Mm. And to the the beings that did witness, did it benefit them at all? Mm -hmm. I would like to ask your permission to address your second question first. Sure. Okay. Did it affect you when you heard me say those words or when you were visualizing in your mind how the shockwave is going from one realm to the next? Were you, did you feel anything? Hmm. I'm seeing you nodding for listeners. Yes. So the answer to your second question is an absolute yes. Not just then, even today. 26 centuries later, we're still feeling the shockwave. The truth of the Dhamma it's like light. You walk into a dark room, you turn on the switch. And there's electricity, there's a light bulb that works. Connection is there. Boom. The darkness disappears. It doesn't matter what era it is in or we find ourselves in. It does something. But of course, it doesn't do it for everyone. If there, if there's, if there are people in the uh, room who are blind, or with very thick layers of dust in front of their eyes, even a huge projector 
in face, uh, you know, facing their them straight on like a big spotlight will not help them to see any brightness because they're blind from birth. So it will create a shockwave and it will uh, influence beings where this is happening. Now, the other day, uh, another student asked whether uh, a being, or let's say a deva living in these higher realms, I haven't forgotten about your first question, by the way, um, a being in a heavenly realms, let's say, in the sensual realms, because we also are part of the sensual realm. So are dogs, cats, they can enjoy pleasure and pain but pleasure can be there. So, but a bigger chunk of the realms that fall into the sensual loka or kama loka, we call it, are uh, those comprised of the deva realms. I think they were like 16, if I'm not, I don't keep tabs. Basically, there are many. Now, if, you're, uh, if you reappear or reborn in those realms, you're surrounded by so much sensuality, you don't know what to do with it, other than just go with those senses. Now, many individuals who have had or uh, had some exposure or especially practice in uh, with the Dhamma and really have taken it to heart, even though they might be reborn in these higher realms, they nevertheless will still feel something's off even when there's so many opportunities let's say for sex they're going to feel weird i recall a, um, a story of a of a bhikkhu from the suttas who uh was so dedicated he was somewhat newly ordained bhikkhu but he was so dedicated uh, to the practice, and he was doing walking meditation on his walking path, and his meditation path behind his kuti. And he pushes himself so much, so hard, day and night, day and night, so diligent, that I think he might have not even uh, had sufficient food or rest or water. The sutta says... Um, he leans against a wall or a beam or a tree to capture, you know, to catch himself. Like, you know, just he's so exhausted and he dies there on the spot. Immediately he's reappeared in a higher realm, in a deva realm. And he appears in front of what is supposedly his mansion. And he happens to be this like overlord of a deva. Now, there are other beings around, all women, of his mansion. <laughs> now, again, some people say, oh, come on, this is, this is nonsense, this and that. But might be, but I'm carrying more, I, I'm more interested in what happens with him, given the context again. So these uh, celestial nymphs come to him and they want to, oh, our master is back meaning the Lord of the mansion had died. He expired. And he was just coming in to fill the spot. 
because he had now sufficient merits to enjoy that much heavenly bliss. That's one of the reasons why Lord Buddha did not care about heavenly birth. Doing good, just good for good sake, so that you can do good and that's it, and never practice to purify the mind. The Buddha was never uh, with that. Or just making offerings, just that, and neglecting your practice. The Buddha was against that as well. They need to be incorporated in the practice. And that is what this young bhikkhu had done. And he lands there and these uh, ladies are approaching him and trying to seduce him. And it's like, we're yours. Is Lord, you're here. Let's go inside, etc., etc. And he just keeps his gaze down. He keeps his gaze down and he's, his heart is fluttering. He's like, what is this? What, where am I? I was walking my, you know, I was on my walking meditation path. Where am I? Why am I here? Who are these people? And why are they touching me? So he pushes himself away and he's, he's now pushing himself towards the gate. And the female attendants immediately realize, oh, he must have, our master must have come from a world where he was a, a, an ascetic, a recluse. So they keep their distance, hands in Anjali like this, give him his space. Meanwhile, he's very perplexed, like, I came here, but I don't, I wanted to be an arahant. I wanted to be living my life as a bhikkhu. Why am I here as a layman? He was no longer a bhikkhu, by the way, but he was functioning as a bhikkhu still because of what it meant to him, for him while he was in the human body. And the sutta then says, uh, the bhikkhu then uh, makes a wish and he reappears in front of Lord Buddha and is very distraught is very sad, in tears. And he comes to Lord Buddha and says, Bhante, what has happened? <laughs> what has happened? I, I, why am I there? Like, you know, bring me back basically almost. And Lord Buddha explains to him and he says, Bhikkhu, you have lived a very uh, virtuous life. And that virtue has kept, uh, has been kept with you. Now, Fortunately, Lord Buddha encourages him, inspires him with the Dhamma talk that he does also have the Sotapanna stage occur for him as well. So he has Niyanadasana and he goes, he says, you're going to have to live out your life in that realm. But that doesn't mean that he was going to go back into living, you know, uh, as, you know, uh, doing all the other things that a layman does. That is still your choice, just like it is here in, in the human body. Now, if you happen to be living according to the Dhamma, even in those realms, it will make a bigger of a shockwave for you because your eyes are a lot wider open. And remember, Lord Buddha began to teach under the condition that there would be those with little dust in their eyes. Remember, Brahma Sahampati? That was his argument. Bhante, please, there are many, many beings with little dust in their eyes. Please, Lord, teach. Open the gates of the deathless for them. Don't let us miss this huge opportunity. We don't get a Buddha every day, you know. And so there are many, many beings uh, 
who have listened to, heard, and witnessed even Lord Buddha's, not just words, but even his footsteps that are alive. And they're much more in number than human beings could imagine. So they will be witnessing, they would have. And of course, I'm talking about uh, Lord Buddha Gautama, but we've had at least six other suttas talk about, you know, later commentators uh, actually talk about more numbers, but we have at least six in the Diganikai. So, uh, so that is how I would approach uh, answering your second question. As far as the first question, not necessarily, because there is, uh, as far as them, uh, it, the shockwave might have gone, but you need to have level of understanding and appreciation appreciation of what the Dhamma is. People have to have a reference to what is this versus to something else. Because obviously they had lived long enough to know what was the previous dispensation all about. And there was no longer uh, dispensation left. And now they were hearing it again. Oh my, the lights came on again. They saw it. Now, unfortunately, lower beings, given the intensity of pain and suffering, they must under, and especially the delusion, uh, they will have let a, a very little chance of experiencing any of that. Because as you go lower and lower into uh, lower states of being, woeful states, uh, there will be less of a chance of you encountering the Dhamma. Now, there is a, um, uh, a story where Lord Buddha, um, one very monumentous event takes place where uh, at the end of the Vassa period, Vassa is the rains retreat, which we're nearing its end actually this year. Uh, Lord Buddha decides to open up all of the layers of the heavens so they could see each other. And also, and only a Buddha can do this. And he also opens up all the layers that lead all the way down to the lowest, lowest of realms, meaning the hell realms. That way they could all see each other. There is that. Uh, but he had to make that happen. And the intention was based out of compassion to shock those beings who are overwhelmed by the fact that they're in suffering, where only suffering exists for them, because they're now completely thickly caked in their ignorance. Now they see the heavenly realms. They even see the animal realms that are, you know, for their own sake, they feel like they're in bliss compared to them in hell. Hungry ghosts, etc. All beings, they even saw all the way up to the Brahman realms. And the human realms were also seeing both. And there is that uh, to kind of tie in with your first question. Can they basically become aware of each other's existence? Or can the power of the Buddha penetrate that is one example that I can think of uh, from the suttas, from the Nikayas, in fact, where 
that did happen and, and being saw, because that can inspire a person to say, well, this is not, I guess this is not all there is to it. There's more. One of the reasons why humanity today is suffering more so than before, in my opinion, is because of this presence of this blatant uh, omission, intentional omission of, of neglect of the other aspect of life. Last week, I was referring to one extreme versus the other that Lord Buddha was referring to in the context of the middle path. He pointed out the uh, annihilationist, the one who only looks at this life, at this body as it. Once this ends, that's it, forget it, lights out. And the other extreme was the eternalist who sacrifices this life, this body for the sake of something higher. They never really make the most of this life for the sake of something else to come. Making transactions, you know, whether you're Buddhist or not, let me do this so that I can get a better mansion in the heavens like that bhikkhu, right? That is not, these are two extremes. We, most of us in the, you know, you know, majority part of if you're like educated and, and, and exposed to uh, different influences in the world today, social media, there is this drive to move us away from, well, what is this heavenly life nonsense, these existences in hells, like this is absolute rubbish type of a thing. And you do have Buddhists who call themselves Buddhists while completely removing that, even rebirth, even karma out. Well, I don't know what type of Buddhism they're practicing, but that is not Buddhist at all. You cannot talk about the Dhamma at the exclusion of these things. It doesn't work. It must be there. Why? Because Lord Buddha talked about it often. And I'm not talking about like one or two suttas. Every day of his discourses, of his teachings, there was a portion of his busy, busy dispensation, busy day where he dedicated to non-human beings, where he taught them, those who came to listen. And we need to know about these realms. Otherwise, we can also fall into that other extreme view and that's another thing. So long as we have wrong view, there's no way that any of us will have jnana dasana. There's no way that any of us can become a sotapanna. If I am holding on to a wrong view, that will be a hindrance. In fact, when a person becomes a sotapanna, it is impossible for them to say, well, heavenly life doesn't exist or hells don't exist, they don't, it won't work. If you find yourself someone claiming to be an Arahant or a Sotapanna or the mix between those three, four, uh, and they say something like that, you have your hand, you know, you have, you have a fake Arahant in your hands. <laughs> because one of the things that we must have faith in, because in our own practice, in our own journeys, in, in ordeals that we go through on a daily basis, difficulties, 
Lord Buddha talks about this so many places, especially in the Anguttara Nikaya. He says, as an anchor point for ourselves to hold ourselves secure in as a refuge, we need to have certain faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And if it doesn't work for the person, any of these three, go ahead and use, let's say, if it's not your sila, which is another source of refuge, your own adherence to virtuous behavior, life, you also have your own dana, your generosity. And if that doesn't work, you, you must use the devas. Why? Why did he mention the devas? The realm of devas, immediate, just us fathoming the possibility of such a realm can pull you out from the mire, from the mud, from, from pain, the shackles that you're in, that we, for our sankharas, because of those conditions, we are now in. And it can be very saturated. It can be very congested. It can be suffocating. And our faith might even die if we don't throw the lasso out there and look at what other things Lord Buddha taught us that can touch us on a deeper, deeper visceral level. So many people were assisted simply by remembering the devas. Even assisted to stay on the path. Venerable Nanda was a perfect example. of this until he saw the devas and he really had to you know do a double take to look back at the beauties that he saw and he's like wow the, the beauty this and that and then he compared <laughs> with the beauty found in the heavenly realms is like wow people are pretty ugly here compared to what i saw he says but then he even goes beyond that bias and he understands the Dhamma. But Lord Buddha used that as an impetus, as a, as a jumping board for Venerable Nanda to traverse, go beyond his own hangups. Because he was a royal, he was a king, you know, he was about to be king. And so he was surrounded by beauty, the most beautiful that India of those days could offer. And that was his deterrent. He was like constantly thinking of disrobing and going back to that. So Lord Buddha just takes him there to the Deva realms. And he's just like, whoa, what is this? And Lord Buddha asks him, uh, what do you think about your beautiful world? People like, like what? Then, like, I, I think he uses a very crude uh, an, uh, analogy to express to Lord Buddha what he thinks of the beauty that he has seen. I think he's just like a thing on a crow's beak or a crow's body, you know, as like compared to these beings. So, anyhow. Um, we need the devas, we need, uh, and, and, and yeah. So I hope I answered your question. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Are there any thoughts, questions?
comments before we close? Thanks very much, Pante. Mm -hmm. um, I'd just like to um, share my experiences um, uh, about very short and temp temporary experiences as a uh, um, Samanera, um, which ended about two weeks ago. Um, I was, I must say that I am very lucky to experience uh, the ropes within the Thai Pansa, which is um, which is Thai for Vasa. And um, well, there were no Dhamma talks. There were, okay, um, every morning we, and evening we, uh, there is one hour each of chanting sessions. And um, after that, we, uh, in the mornings, we have some very minimal, very light duties, like cleaning the toilets, um, sweeping the back, uh, the courtyards. And most of the time, I was left all on my own to practice uh, my meditation, to listen to Dhamma talks, to read suttas um, uh, in the middle of the day. Um, okay, so uh, it's in the Thai traditions that um, during a pansa, um, okay, um, the, the chantings in the morning and the evenings will be, um, okay, amidst all other chants, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta is being chanted at twice the speed in Pali. So basically, <laughs> um, and there are no explanations, nothing at all. So everything goes twice the speed. Uh, it goes like, you know, Ewang Min Sutang Ekang Samayang Bhagawang Baranasi Viharati Isipatane Niadaye. It just goes like that at twice the speed and it finishes in i'll say 10 15 minutes and within the 10 15 minutes of you know um high speed party chanting i could only recognize several um, several sentences which i pre-memorized and um from my very um poor command of pali i can pick up words here and there and I must say that every time, I, uh, every morning and every evening when it's being chanted, I feel the shockwave without fully understanding. <laughs> and okay, um, there are two cats in the monastery and <laughs> the, <laughs> these two cats are the our regular um, participants in the chanting. And in fact, my, um, uh, my abbot reminded me that the cats were there almost every session of the chanting and <laughs> probably has participated in chantings more than any sitting bhikkhu. <laughs> yes, so and that um, they are probably there for some, you know, some causes and conditions. Mm. But of course, I'll leave it to your imagination regarding mm. the kids. Mm -hmm. Yes, sadhu indeed for the shockwave. Uh, every time we expose ourselves to the Dhamma, we're giving room for that to occur 
And in that sense, shock waves have never ceased from occurring. It is us who put on these very strong headphones, if you will, not to hear and headphones even for our hearts not to see when Dhamma comes knocking, if you will. But especially the Dhamma that is already, all of you have been exposed to so much, again, already. To know that it is all about bringing it here in the context of you feeling the breath, for example. Earlier, we were talking about the term Dhamma. Dhamma, what is Dhamma? What does it generate within me, in my mind? Am I trying to prove or disprove someone or someone's point? Am I contentious? Am I holding on to something? All of these are examples of not being open to experiencing the shockwave. The shockwave is always there, and that is what happened with Venerable Kondanya. Lord Buddha brought the shockwave. That's why he was explaining it term by term, point by point, point by point, until Venerable Kondanya got it, and then the others as well, within a matter of few days. So there's so much relinquishment that need, is needed to take place. The term is patinisagga on our part. We need to let go. It's a shedding process. Because using your example, Upatissa, it would have been very easy for you to do a compare and contrast while you were in the midst of bhikkhus who were chanting. Well, how could they? Come on, this is poly, you know, super speed. What is this? This is not supposed to happen. You know, this is disgrace. This is, this is, you know, plus it's, it's in the vasa. You know, I'm, I'm, what kind of an impression are they making on me? I'm doing a temporary ordination, you know, at least there should be something in English. Uh, what, if, all this could have taken place. Instead, your mind somehow circled the drain and went straight to the mindfulness part and looked for terms that it understood, it recognized, even in that high-speed chanting. And you plucked those terms and boom, it was enough for you to taste the shockwave again. Ah, oh, music. Better than music, of course, but it's, it's beautiful. And that's one of the reasons why we sit prior to doing these series of suttas. So we prepare the mind, allow the mind to drop all its noise, its conditionings, its, its things as much as possible. To try to create this clean slate for seeing and, you know, what is the Dhamma offering today for us? So thank you for that. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if those two cats had been bipeds in their last life. Uh, yeah. 
who knows? <laughs> Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, any other thoughts, comments before we close? Okay. Uh, so the next sutta, uh, which I'll have to translate first, uh, the is the Anattalakkana Sutta, and that is uh, this the discourse on non-substantiality or non-self, which usually is translated as, and uh, where we see all the five attaining arahantship. Uh, um, so, let us close with the sharing of merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you all be well. May the triple gem protect you. And may the doorways and the windows for the shock waves be wide open in your life. And uh, I'll see you next week for our regular uh, two hour uh, sitting. Next week will be that. Until next time. Be well.